Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. True Crime Brewery contains disturbing content related to real life crimes. Medical information is opinion based on facts of a crime and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment. Listener discretion is advised. I was in my favorite bar, take five, and he was sitting across from me. I went over to him because I was interested in finding out who this person was. And then he introduced himself as Jack Unterweger. I had already heard about him because he had directed plays at the Café Landman. He was kind of difficult to live with, you know. He got up at 6 a.m. every morning because that's what he was used to because of his 16-year prison term. He expected me to keep house and do the cooking, cleaning, laundry. He told me I couldn't smoke. He told me I couldn't drink and he was a total control freak. He would always pretend to be the great writer who was making a lot of money, but he just lived off of women. Apparently his books didn't do quite as well as he always said. The phone rang in the bar and I picked up and he was crying like a little kid. He yelled and so on that he was going to kill himself, that he was the hooker killer of Austria, that the police were looking for him. I wanted to go home. I wanted to go back to Vienna. Welcome to True Crime Brewery. I'm Jill. And I'm Dick. Today's episode is sponsored in part by Bill Nye's new podcast, which is now available, called Science Rules. This show is for everyone who loved his show as a kid. Jill and I just saw Bill on John Oliver last weekend, and he was hilarious as he educated us on global warming. He even said fuck, which was pretty fucking entertaining. <laughs> on Science Rules, Bill Nye takes calls from listeners and answers all of their funny, embarrassing, sometimes weird, and sometimes serious questions. Questions like, how do we go about putting colonies on Mars? How often should I really be washing my pillowcase? And, will I ever be able to upload my brain to a computer? The first episode of Science Rules is out now, so you can check it out right after TCB. And make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks, Dick. Jack Unterweger's lust for violence was insatiable. His first known murder victim was Margaret Schaefer, an 18-year-old German girl. Unterweger would tell a jury that, at the moment of her killing, he had seen his mother reflected in her face, and he acted out of a lifetime of rage. He was sentenced to life imprisonment. But in jail, 
Unterweger read voraciously, and he began to write poetry, short stories, plays, and an autobiography. After over 15 years in prison, Unterweger was released based on the belief that writing his life story and the self-reflection that that required had reformed him. Not only was he a famous author, he was also Austria's most high-profile, rehabilitated offender. But Unterweger had everyone fooled. As he interviewed police in the role of a journalist, he had already resumed his life as a serial killer. Unterweger sexually assaulted and brutally murdered prostitutes in Vienna, Los Angeles, and Prague as he spoke on talk shows, and he worked to get his books made into Hollywood movies. So join us at The Quiet End today for The Devil Himself, Jack Unterweger. It's a shocking story of an international serial killer who was hiding in plain sight. So I had a choice of uh, different areas for beers. Yeah, I was curious what you would pick. So I, I weaseled out and took a California beer. I was really hoping for Prague. Nope. No? No, I went with a beer called Beatification by Russian River Brewing Company in Santa Rosa, California. This is a beer for you, Jill. It's an American wild ale. Oh, all is forgiven then. Okay. So it's a hazy, light gold color, very small white head, kind of bubbly, effervescent, nice aroma, got some bread, some oak, some citrus, a little bit of that musty, funky wild ale aroma. Taste follows through quite well. Some green apple tartness thrown in there. It's a nice, crisp, dry-finishing beer. Lovely. But uh, Russian River makes some fantastic beers. And our next trip to California, we got to stop by there. Okay. I can't wait to try this one. Let's open it up. Okay. All right, Dickie, follow me down here to the quiet end. We're going to talk about an international serial killer. This is a new one. This new is. One for me. This is. I mean, he, he traveled far and wide. He was horrible. Yes. Yes. And I bet he killed more people than we know of. Well, that seems to be the common thought. I mean, not just for him, but for most of the serial killers that we've talked about. True. Is, is uh, here, Here's what they get charged with and are convicted of. But the thought from the authorities investigating the cases is always, oh, there's more. Well, there's usually a reason for that. Like with that nurse that we covered last week, Kristen Gilbert, it's because she had the that power over so many patients. And there were a lot of deaths unexplained right. of her patients. Yeah. Now with him, I think it's because his victims were prostitutes. And a lot of them didn't have family members or anyone looking for them or looking out for them. Yeah, unfortunately, they go missing, and there may or may not be people that miss them. Exactly. It's a lot like with the Green River Killer. Right. Really kind of focusing in on these vulnerable women who usually have a drug addiction and are often cut off from their families and loved ones. That's right. Serial killers are actually quite rare. In the late 1980s, the FBI reported that there were about 35 serial killers in the United States, and that was then with a population of about 250 million people. It still seems like a lot to me. It does. Although if you look at countries with smaller populations, 
such as Austria, they've maybe gone decades without a serial killer. Yes, and I believe that Vienna had never seen a serial killer before, at least not in modern history. I think that's true from what we were reading and looking at. Yes, so this guy was compared a lot to Jack the Ripper. Yes. Now, in 1974, two prostitutes, Margaret Schaefer and Marcia Horvath, were murdered. Schaefer had been hit in the head with a steel pipe and strangled with her bra. Horvath had been strangled with her stockings and a necktie. Her mouth was taped and her body was thrown into a lake near Salzburg. The investigators were soon led to Johann Jack Unterweger, who broke down and confessed to the murder of Schaefer. But he refused to take the responsibility for the murder of Horvath. Right, so he was only convicted of the one. Right, and there was something we were reading about that in Austria you can't be convicted of more than one? If you already have one life sentence, you can't get a second one, at least at that time. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So while in prison, he was examined by a Dr. Klaus Jarosch. I'm going to have a lot of problems here with pronunciation, so I apologize in advance. And this was a forensic psychologist, and he noted that Jack was a sexually sadistic psychopath with narcissistic and histrionic tendencies. In 1976, Jack was convicted and sentenced to life in prison for Margaret Schaefer's murder. And like you said, they wouldn't bring the other one against him anyway because he already had a life in prison, which is actually only required 15 years. So much lighter than what we'd see here in the United States. Right. And there was some mention or discussion about, well, if they had a crystal ball and knew that he was going to be released in 15 years... Maybe they would have tried for the other conviction. Right, exactly. Uh, If for nothing else, to know that he had killed two people and that 15 years was too lenient a sentence. Perhaps. But it didn't happen. No, unfortunately. While he was in prison, Unterweger seemed able to transform himself from a sadistic killer to an insightful, articulate author and intellectual. He wrote short stories, poems, plays, and his autobiography, Purgatory, or The Trip to Prison, Report of a Guilty Man. Yeah, in 1985, though, there was a campaign that began to pardon and release him from prison. Many people in the artistic community were convinced that he was reformed. The Austrian president refused the petition that was presented to him by writers, journalists, and politicians, citing the court-mandated minimum of 15 years in prison. So because of that, he wasn't released until 1990. Yeah, he served his required 15 years. Although I I didn't see when I was watching shows and reading. There wasn't any report from a psychiatrist or a physician that said that he was truly rehabilitated. This was more of a groundswell from uh, authors and uh, politicians and so on. Yeah, there are no reports in the files that we've gone through about him having a psychiatrist evaluate him before he was set free. Although I think he was pretty convincing and he might have been able to fool someone. Obviously. Yeah. So he was released in May of 1990. And after his release, his autobiography was actually taught in schools and children's stories that he had written were performed over the radio. Unterweger began to host TV talk shows and discuss criminal rehabilitation. 
kind of talking about himself as the exception because he had been so well reformed. Right. Which is really creepy. It certainly is. Then he worked as a reporter for the public broadcaster, ORF, where he would end up reporting on the murders that he had actually committed as he was committing them. He spent some time in Los Angeles, even going on ride-alongs with a detective investigating the murders of L.A. prostitutes. And these were more murders that Unterweger himself had committed. So this was both brazen and stupid, but no one suspected him right away. Yeah, he was hiding in plain sight. Absolutely. As he said. Mm-hmm. So on July 11th, 1991, there was a solar eclipse over Los Angeles. Two men and their children were driving out of Los Angeles that morning up to Corral Canyon Road in Malibu in order to see the eclipse. And they drove to a perfect viewing spot and made their, made their way to the top of a steep hill where they found one of Unterweger's victims. And they were too traumatized by what they saw to even stay and observe the eclipse. Well, no kidding. Absolutely. So the body of a woman was lying face up, less than a hundred feet off a dirt road, under some shrubbery. And she was in an advanced state of decomposition. Her face was covered by maggots, and they were just all over the place. Yeah, I don't want to go too much into it, but that gives you an idea of how bad it was. Her t-shirt was pulled up under her arms, and she had been strangled with her own bra. Police would identify her by her remaining fingerprints. She turned out to be a prostitute named Sherry Long. And the pathologist estimated that Sherry had been dead for four to seven days. When Detective Fred Miller at the LAPD Homicide Department heard the story of the girl murdered in Malibu, he believed that the killer he'd been hunting had killed again. The killer Miller was hunting had struck first back on June 19, 1991, and his victim was 20-year-old Shannon Exley. Shannon had called her father before she went to work, telling him that she was trying to get her life in order. But Shannon had a drug addiction, and she'd left home in her teens, selling her body for drug money. Her last customer picked her up sometime after midnight and drove east across the L.A. River to the 7th Street Girl Scout Center. The vacant lot behind that building was surrounded by trees, so no one would see the killer's car. No one reported hearing any screams either. Shannon was also strangled with her own bra, and the pathologist had to identify her. Like Sherry Long, Shannon had a record of arrests for prostitution. Then just a week later, a homeless man who was looking for wood to build a fire in the industrial area along the L.A. River, found a woman's body lying on her back underneath a tractor trailer. Her bra was knotted so tightly around her neck that her neck was compressed to less than half its size. Most of her clothing was missing. A t-shirt, a sock, and a hypodermic syringe were lying nearby. Her fingerprints identified her as 33-year-old Irene Rodriguez. Irene had just arrived in Los Angeles three months earlier, from El Paso, Texas. She'd been living with her common-law husband and their four kids. So L.A. County pathologist Dr. Lynn Harold had dealt with thousands of deaths, many of them homicides, each year. She had seen victims who were bound with tape, rope, extension cords, cables, telephone cords, even electrical wire. 
but never before with their own undergarments. So this set these cases apart. In mid-July 91, Dr. Harold received three bras in brown paper bags for her examination. They had each been made into identical nooses. So this confirmed what Miller already suspected. These three women had been killed by the same person. Yeah, and, and uh, the way the, the bras were made into garrots or, or strangulation devices was kind of unique. Yes, very so, uh, identifiable. It was like a signature for the murder weapon. You're right, yes. He'd assaulted and murdered three times in Los Angeles. This was within a two-week period. So the detectives were bracing themselves for a fourth murder any day, but that never did happen. Four women had disappeared from Vienna's red light district before Unterweger's trip to L.A. in April and early May of 1991. So the first body was found in the Vienna woods on May 20th. A retired man walking a path through the section of the Vienna woods noticed the smell of decomposition first. So searching the ground of the forest, he saw a body lying in the brush among dead stumps and tree branches. The young woman's corpse was naked except for a leotard that was pulled up around her shoulders. She was face down with her legs spread wide apart in a humiliating and obscene pose and wildlife had chewed all of the flesh off her right leg. Now, an autopsy later confirmed that she had died from strangulation with her own tights. Yeah, the Vienna woods are very dense in some areas. The urban area of the city abruptly turns to the forest on the western edge. Detectives wondered why any prostitute would agree to cross this boundary from city into the dark woods with a client. Had the client-slash-killer convince them to go with him for more money? Unterweger was certainly able to convince a lot of people to do things they normally would not do. So that's a possibility. Or did he incapacitate or bind the women before driving them into the deserted woods? They weren't sure, but they were thinking that he had probably convinced them to go along, offering more money. He's a smooth-talking guy, that's for sure. Yes, very much so. Now, it didn't take long to identify the first victim. Sabine Moitzi, 25 years old, was a bakery clerk during the day, but unknown to her husband, she occasionally worked as a secret prostitute. That meant she was not registered with the Office of Health, as prostitutes are required. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Required to do by law in Vienna. So she was kind of an off the books prostitute. Yeah, so really no one knew that she was working the street. Right. Sabine's husband had filed a missing person report in April. Sabine had become addicted to heroin, and her salary from the bakery didn't even begin to cover the cost of the drug. At around 11 o'clock on the night of April 16th, a girlfriend had dropped her off at an intersection near the West Train Station. When the friend drove by 10 minutes later, Sabine was gone. Her body was found five weeks later, and the level of decomposition matched her being deceased since mid-April when she was last seen. 
The second body was found just three days later on May 23rd. Karen Uroglu had disappeared on the night of May 7th from her corner, which was just a few blocks from where Sabine had last been seen. She'd been driven 10 miles outside of the city, even deeper into the woods. Her body lay in a grove of spruce trees, 30 yards from the nearest road. She was a heavier woman, so it would have been really difficult for her killer to carry her that far into the woods. So investigators believe that her killer had most likely forced her to walk to the spot where her body was found. Which is just a terrifying thing to think about. I can't even think about it. There was blunt force trauma to her face, and that showed that she'd been severely beaten. Her leotard had been made into the same kind of ligature that was found around Sabine Moitzi's neck. He had taken the rest of her clothing with him. Again, he had placed her body face down, and he'd left her jewelry. But this time, he did leave a trace of himself behind. Underneath her body, there was a torn-off fingertip of a rubber surgical glove. So this was a sign that the murder had been planned in advance. So they knew they were dealing with a serial killer who was planning out these murders. Right. And they're, they're figuring, we still got two more missing prostitutes. They probably suffered the same fate. So two of the missing women had been found murdered in the same way. And it was only a matter of time before the bodies of the other two missing women, Sylvia Zogler and Regina Prem, would be found. Investigators questioned everyone who had known the murdered and missing women, and they constructed a timeline. So April 8, 1991, Sylvia Zogler was last seen on her corner. Now, her body had not yet been found. Then April 16, 1991, Sabine Moitzi was last seen on her corner. Her body was found on May 20th in the Vienna woods. April 28, 1991, Regina Prem was last seen walking back to her corner from a hotel, and her body had not yet been found. Then on May 7, 1991, Karen Eroglu was last seen on her corner, and her body was found on May 23rd in the Vienna woods. And all of these women were from pretty much the lowest class of street prostitution. They weren't super attractive, and none of them had powerful pimps to stake out their corners for them or monitor what was going on. No one was looking after them, which is probably why the killer had chosen them. I think he knew. Oh, I think he did his homework. Yeah, absolutely. I think he'd been staking these things out and knew. No one's ever said that Jack was not an, uh, an intelligent guy. Right. He may have even had dates with these women before. He might have picked them up before and not murdered them. He might have. And that's going to give them the more confidence to go with them. That's right. So the killer had struck on average once every 10 days, on a Sunday, Monday, or Tuesday night, when the traffic in the neighborhood was light, and when most of the residents of the surrounding apartment buildings were already at home and in bed. And there were no morning relatives for a lot of these murder victims that were on the news. Like many prostitutes, these murdered and missing women didn't have much contact with their families. So no one came forward to talk about them and their lives. So the public never learned anything about them, other than their names and ages and where they had last been seen. Now the only exception to this that's notable is Rudolf Prem, the husband of the still-missing Regina Prem. 
She had grown up in an orphanage, and she'd held several low-paying jobs. And according to Rudolph, two years after she met him, she decided that she could make more money as a prostitute. And that's what she did. Yeah, and she wasn't the only one. Uh, Sabine's husband had filed a missing persons report on her also. Yes, but I mean, this is the only one that went on the news and talked about his wife. Right. To give her, you know, a human face, so to speak. There hadn't been a lot of that with these women. No, there hadn't. But Rudolph and Regina had a child, and they were married. And Rudolph actually quit his job to stay home and look after their little boy. With Regina's earnings, she had furnished their apartment and built a playroom for their child. And just before she disappeared, she had bought the child a new suit, getting ready for his first communion. Her nights working on the street had really aged this 33-year-old to the point where she looked older and really worn out. But anyone who knew her would say that she would do anything to provide what she saw as a good life for her little boy. At about 9.45 in the evening, on Sunday, April 28, 1991, Rudolph dropped Regina off for her appointment with a regular client who was a wine salesman. So she would normally finish around 2 a.m. and would call Rudolph to pick her up. Now when she didn't call, he drove to her corner and looked for her. Her co-worker, Erica, who worked the opposite corner, hadn't seen her at all that night. And then Erica and Rudolph drove around to places where Regina usually serviced her customers, but they couldn't find her. They then went to the Hotel Rudolfshoa, where Regina sometimes went with high-paying clients. The porter there said he'd seen her that evening. She'd paid her bill and left at around 11.30. The sausage vendor across the street said the same thing. So Regina walked out of the hotel around 11.30 by herself. She must have returned to her corner and encountered her last customer, who turned out to be her killer. So ten days after the second body was found, a reporter for the ORF, Austrian Broadcasting Corporation, showed up at police headquarters for an interview with Chief Max Edelbacher about the murders. The reporter introduced himself as Jack Unterweger, and said he was producing a story for Journal Panorama, the highest quality current events radio program that was in the country. Unterweger said he was a freelance reporter with a special qualification. His aunt had been a prostitute who was murdered by her last customer in 1967. From her, he said he'd learned about the lives of prostitutes. From losing her, he understood what the girls in the red light district were going through at this point. So he'd interviewed a few prostitutes on their corners, and at the same time, he produced a radio story. He also researched and co-wrote an article on the murders for a weekly newspaper. Most journalists, he claimed, were incapable of understanding what the prostitutes were really going through. While the women were wary of the police, he had assured them that he, as the nephew of a murdered prostitute, really understood their world, and he was someone that they could trust. Now, this is all Jack's account. Right. Well, and then his account of his childhood was quite fanciful. He said that he had been abandoned with his violent alcoholic grandfather in the middle of nowhere, without proper food and clothing and with no motherly love. So the theme of his story was basically, it's no wonder this poor child became a criminal. Oh, yeah. Not only did he say his grandfather was an alcoholic, but he said that his grandfather beat him 
that his grandfather would bring women home and he had to share the bed with his grandfather. So he'd be right there as his grandfather had sex with these women. Right. And that his mother, well, you'll talk about his mother. Well, she did actually leave him. That is true. She did. Jack's mother was a country girl named Theresia Unterweger. And she left home in her late teens, working as a waitress and a barmaid, and falling in with American soldiers who were occupying her country. She became pregnant and was then briefly jailed for fraud. She was released a few weeks before Jack's birth, and she named him after his father, who she claimed was an American soldier named Jack Becker. When Jack was just two, his mother was again arrested, and he was placed in the care of his grandfather in the Alpine countryside in the southernmost state of Austria. So a very remote area. Very remote. A recurring theme in this novel, in Jack's novel, was young Jack's quest to find his mother. He yearned for her to come and take him away from his unhappy world, but she never did. Now later in his story, he traveled to Salzburg to search for his mother. He didn't find her, but he found her sister, Anna, who was a Salzburg prostitute. His aunt Anna was kind to him, and later in the story he was overwhelmed with grief when he learned that his aunt had been murdered by her last customer. Now, Unterweger had been arrested at the age of 24 and was released into the world at the age of 39. So that's how he spent his 15 years, cut off from people. Yes, but becoming educated in writing, yes. And he didn't waste any time when he got released. He began seducing women right away. A few days after his parole hearing, he visited a nurse at her flat near the hospital. The next day, he met the wife of an ORF crew member in the Café Museum and then went with her to her apartment. Just two weeks after his release, he appeared on a nationally televised talk show on the topic of penal reform and he talked about his reform and gave his insights on prison life. Yeah, and Jack was also very into clothes, and he loved wearing suits. At his first book reading as a free man, he wore a 70s disco-era white silk suit with a red rose in the lapel. We saw that interview, or that reading. Yes. It was quite a striking sight. <laughs> and he was kind of a tiny guy. I think he was five foot seven, about yeah. 120, 130 yeah, he, pounds. he was little. But, but he, he was, was strong. Very strong. Mm-hmm. So for his first few months of freedom, Winterweger was one of Vienna's popular chic intellectuals, though the romantic notion that artists and writers are exceptional, creative people who don't abide by the rules of ordinary society was at the core of Vienna's state-subsidized artists and writers. So magazines would do illustrated stories on Unterweger. Some portrayed him in flashy suits, some as an ex-con shirtless in blue jeans, which better showed his body covered with prison tattoos. So this is very different from what we're used to in the U.S. If you're an artist or a writer, the government will subsidize your life so you can do that. Where here, you need to go out and be a waiter or something else until you can make your own money as an artist. That's right. It's very different thought process. Kind of hard to wrap your mind around when you're not used to that. It is. Although there is a lot about that that I like. Well, yeah, but it also makes me think that they could feel like they were entitled, you know? Oh, well, he absolutely did. And sure. Jack certainly did. Sure. 
So August Schenner was 70 years old at the time of the murders after Jack's release. He was a retired investigator, and he told the Austrian police that the circumstances of the prostitute's deaths reminded him of a killer he had caught nearly 20 years before, and that was Jack Unterweger. So this is when he was starting to be considered as a suspect. Yeah, it started out with Schenner really pushing the the police department that uh, I know this guy's doing it. They didn't believe that someone of his stature... No. An artist would do that. He's rehabilitated. He couldn't be doing this. Exactly. But Herr Schenner was convinced and persistent. And part of it was also that he had a an unsolved murder of a prostitute. And he's convinced that Unterweger had killed that woman, but had never been able to bring it to trial. So as police were beginning to close in on him in Austria... Unterweger was hired by an Austrian magazine to write an article on crime in Los Angeles, and this would focus on the differences between the Australian and American perceptions of prostitution. So it was learned that on his trip to Los Angeles, Unterweger had gone on ride-alongs with the LAPD and had even given them insight on catching the killer. But the Vienna Strangler had left no forensic evidence behind. But still, police put Unterweger under surveillance while they built their case. Yeah, so he began to be known as the Vienna Strangler. Right. Sort of like Jack the Ripper. Right. But it wasn't until the Vienna police contacted the LAPD to ask about the unsolved homicides with that M.O. of strangling the victims with their bras that a connection was really made. The dates Unterweger stayed in L.A. coincided with the murders there. No Austrian prostitutes went missing during that time frame either. Right. So that's very interesting. Here you've got this guy who was convicted of killing a woman years ago. And when he's released, there's prostitutes that start turning up dead and missing in Austria. Uh, but no one solved prostitute murders in Los Angeles. Then he goes to L.A. to help them ostensibly. And while he's there, there aren't any Viennese or Austrian prostitutes murdered. But there are prostitutes murdered in Los Angeles while he's there. Throughout this time frame, he had girlfriends, mostly younger in their teens, who he would put to work and they would support him. Yeah, he did. Like I said, he's a smooth-talking guy. Yeah. So it ended up being a single hair with the root ball intact that would be the evidence that helped to solve this case. In 1991, police interviewed Unterweger And during the interrogation, he admitted to visiting the red light district, but only to interview prostitutes for his research. The problem was his alibis didn't check out, and when a warrant was finally issued for his arrest, he disappeared. In a search of his home, detectives found a red scarf, a leather jacket, and a menu for a popular seafood restaurant on the beach in Malibu. The Vienna police contacted the LAPD to compare their three prostitute murders that had occurred while Unterweger was in Los Angeles. A query through Interpol also brought up another lead in Prague. A young woman named Blanca Bakova had gone missing there. Her body was found in September of 1990 in a riverbank, naked and strangled with her own clothing. Further investigation revealed that Unterweger had killed Blanca less than four months after his release from prison, because he was just released in May of 1990. Fairly rapid recidivism. Yeah, within about a year, 
he killed at least 10 people. Yes, he did. So in October of 1990, a prostitute named Brunhilde Masser disappeared from her usual corner, and her body was found in the woods in January of 1991. She, too, had been strangled with her own underwear. So Unterweger decided to disappear into a big American city for a while. His, him and his girlfriend, Bianca, drove to Orly, which is near Paris, and took a flight to Miami, Florida. Bianca was only 17 years old, and Unterweger was 40. They traveled with their own passports, and they purchased the tickets with his visa card, and police began an international search for him. Bianca would describe Unterweger as a complete control freak. He pretended to be making a lot of money with his writing, but he would actually live off of women. He tried to get Bianca to work as a prostitute, but she refused. But she did agree to work as a bartender and a waitress and bring her money to him. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And that was in Switzerland. Yes, she went was, to Switzerland. It was a busy, so there's a busy season, the Lenten season or something. But she was busy and brought in good money. Yeah, but it's just hard to imagine what lured her in. I know. And even when this, this is all going on and she's figuring that she really doesn't like him that much. She still stood by him. Yeah, she did. Very strange. So, and after they arrived in Florida, almost immediately, Winterweger read through the newspaper one ads, and he found that the Miami Gold Club, nice name, was hiring <laughs> go-go dancers, which was a perfect position for his young girlfriend, Bianca. So, in the evenings, Bianca began dancing at Miami Gold to support them, while Winterweger said he was working on his defense. Now you just have to wonder, what was she thinking at this point? Was she thinking he was innocent? She uh, must have been. At least for all intents and purposes, yeah. I can't imagine she'd uh, stay with him and all that if she wasn't thinking I, he I was mean, innocent. I mean, even when the police were reporting things to her that, that pretty much nailed down Jack's guilt, she stood by him. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll get more into that. Let's take a quick break here for our sponsors. The creator of the hit series Bodyguard once again has the UK's number one show of the year, Line of Duty, with an all-new season streaming exclusively on Acorn TV. Acorn TV streams British and international crime dramas, psychological thrillers, and mysteries for just $5.99 a month. Line of Duty is a cat-and-mouse thriller that takes a probing look into modern police corruption. With gripping storylines and breathtaking cliffhangers, each new season features a new guest star in investigation. Now you'll see stars like Lenny James of The Walking Dead, 
Thandy Newton of Westworld, and this year Stephen Graham of Boardwalk Empire. In addition to Line of Duty, Acorn TV streams fan favorites like Doc Martin and Midsummer Murders, as well as Acorn TV originals you can't stream anywhere else, including Agatha Raisin, Loch Ness, and Manhunt. Catch up on the first four seasons and stream the latest season of Line of Duty exclusively on Acorn TV. For a limited time, watch the first episode of Season 1 for free at acorn.tv slash brewery. And then enjoy all of Acorn TV's top-rated British dramas and mysteries for free with an extended 30 days trial using the code BREWERY. Awesome. I'm going to check that out myself. I love British TV. Yes, it's just so very British, you know. Mm-hmm. Darkness, tragedy, and pain are things that hide within every beloved institution, and most of us are none the wiser. Every week, join ParCast's original, The Dark Side Of, as they pull back the curtain to bring you the most salacious stories and disturbing details behind everything that we hold most dear. Episodes take seemingly innocuous topics and expose the dirty secrets that you were never meant to know. You'll learn the dark side of Hollywood, where on the set of The Wizard of Oz, numerous accidents sent actors to the hospital. And I bet you didn't know that Nazi sympathizer Victor Fleming reportedly beat the star, Judy Garland. I never knew that. Nope. There's also the dark side of music, where Elvis Presley was so obsessed with death that he brought friends to a mortuary at 3 a.m. to look at corpses. Now, I knew a lot of things about Elvis, but not that. That's another one, right? Yes. And how about the dark side of the Bible, which contains stories of child sacrifice and demonic giants? It's creepy, but it's informative. You've heard the good side, now hear the dark side of. Search for and subscribe to The Dark Side Of on Spotify or wherever you listen to TCB. Or visit parcast.com slash darkside to listen. So Jack kept in touch with one of his other girlfriends back in Vienna. Her name was Elizabeth. Now Jack told her that he had run out of money and was sleeping on the beach. He never mentioned Bianca. He also told her... I was just going to say no because he's juggling them. Well, yeah. He also told her that his life was in grave danger without his thyroid medication, which isn't exactly true. I don't know, but he was certainly playing these girls. Yeah. I mean, you can go some time. If you have thyroid disease, which I think that was an if, you can go some time or some length of time without ill effects, and it's probably not going to kill you. So he asked Elizabeth to send money to him. Now, the next day, Elizabeth told him on the phone that her boss at Success Magazine would pay him $10,000 for an exclusive interview. He would wire Unterweger in advance and pay the rest at the time of the interview. Unterweger agreed and gave them instructions for wiring the money to him. He was thrilled. But there's trickery involved here. The day after that, U.S. Marshals sat on a hotel terrace on 11th Street observing. Their orders were to watch the USA money exchange across the street to see if a European male, five foot six inches, early forties, with pale skin and tattoos on his upper arms, arrived with his girlfriend to pick up a wire transfer. The Immigration Service confirmed that Jack Unterweger had entered the country on a tourist visa without disclosing his felony conviction. It was a civil offense, but it was enough to detain him. Sure. Pick him up for something. 
That's what they need to do to save lives, really. Right. But as he arrived to pick up the money, Unterweger did notice the marshals. And being the gentleman that he was, he sent Bianca in and he waited outside. When she came out of the money exchange, Unterweger started to walk away. Then he took off down an alley as the marshals chased after him. And caught him. Yes, he was caught. But he didn't fight extradition. On March 2nd of 1992, he petitioned the U.S. federal court in Miami to deport him immediately. So I'm thinking maybe the conditions were bad compared to what he was used to in Europe. Maybe the Miami jail was tougher. That was something mentioned in the book. Yeah. Uh, because it was a mystery to all of his attorneys why he didn't, didn't fight extradition. Because he could have. Right. But he voluntarily... Well, think about it, though. If he was convicted for the murders of the three women in L.A., the punishment would probably be a lot harsher in the U.S. Well, you could be sentenced to death. Yeah, Florida, death penalty. Right. Right, so that would be a good reason for it. That's true. Three days later on March 5th, Detective Fred Miller of the LAPD got a call from the Department of Justice. Interpol Washington were reporting that the U.S. Marshal's Office in Miami had arrested Jack Unterwager, who was wanted in Austria for the murder by strangulation of now a total of seven prostitutes. The interesting thing in Austria is that he could be tried for murders in other countries there. Right, he could be. Yeah. So the Austrian police followed a trail of credit card statements of Unterwager's that they had found. And the first thing on the list was Marathon Rent-A-Car, whose records showed Unterweger had rented a blue Toyota Corolla on June 11, 1991. He returned the car on June 20th with a broken windshield on the passenger side. On the damage report, Unterweger said a rock had struck the windshield. But was it really? You know, maybe it was one of his victims trying to escape from the car. Absolutely. I would find that very believable. But investigators really got a big break when they found traces of the red scarf that belonged to him on one of the victims. On his car rental agreement, Unterwager gave his address in Los Angeles as the Hotel Cecil on Main Street, a few blocks from where Irene Rodriguez had disappeared. The hotel records showed he checked in on June 11th and out on July 2nd three days after Irene disappeared and one day before Sherry Long disappeared. And another thing that was mentioned, if he was such a great author, why was he living in the Hotel Cecil, which was pretty rough? He didn't live in any nice hotels. No. Or stay in any nice hotels. He, he picked the cheap ones. He did. He was trying to sell his books for Hollywood screenplays, and he was being rejected. Yeah, I, nobody wanted to do anything with his works. Now, in Europe, they had made a movie based on his autobiography, but Hollywood was not having any of it. They had enough to do, right? They had right. everything. But on May 28th of 1992, Unterweger arrived at the Vienna airport, and as he got off the plane with the two U.S. Marshals, he seemed relaxed and just kind of strolled out as though he was just returning from a vacation in Florida. So he was a cocky bastard. He was. Very pompous. Now, he also continued to receive support from many people, the general public, and particularly the artistic community. Writers and others believe that he was being framed by the police because he was an easy target given his past history. 
When the case finally went to court on April 20, 1994, the press billed it as the trial of the century. Never in Austrian history had one man been accused on so many counts of murder. And it was three trials rolled into one, because Unterweger was alleged to have murdered not only the Austrian prostitutes, but three Americans and one Czech. Yes, so by the time the trial began, he was accused of committing 11 murders in three countries. Witnesses from Los Angeles, Vienna, and Prague were scheduled to give testimony. Forensic scientists from Switzerland, Germany, and the U.S. were also scheduled to testify. Now, his defense was going to be based on his reputation as a ladies' man. It was very lame. (laughs) Again, it shows. Well, it shows his narcissism coming through again. Totally, totally. Jack said that he had sex with over 150 women since his release from prison. So why would he be interested in picking up prostitutes? Well, the easy answer is because he was going to murder them. (laughs) Right. An LAPD criminologist testified to the similarity of the knots tied in the garments used to strangle all of the victims. She held up the bras the women had worn that had been used to kill them for the jury to see. The most shocking part of this was the narrow size that the victims' necks had been in when they were strangled. These were extremely tight nooses and extremely narrow. It's really hard to believe that a woman's neck was inside of it, if you take a look at it. Yeah. It's really about the size of maybe a beer bottle. Oh, it's easy. Or a soda can. Yeah, it's, it's horrific. The prosecution revealed physical evidence they had found in the seats of Unterweger's BMW. The car had been disassembled but the investigators had been able to find the seats in a garage. And in these seats, hairs had been found, including one hair that still had the root attached, so this was extremely important. They were able to extract DNA from that root, and the DNA from the hair root matched Blanka Bakova, the young woman whose body had been found in Prague. There was otherwise no real forensic evidence except the DNA. So this was an extremely important piece of evidence. The rest was pretty circumstantial. But people did begin to realize that Unterweger had never been reformed at all. But he had managed to fool a lot of people in a short period of time. Or over a long period of time, depending how you want to look at it. Right. He was a good speaker. So Unterweger would give his own final summation. His words were the last the jury would hear before they deliberated. Under Austrian law, a simple majority was sufficient for a conviction, so Jack needed to succeed with at least four of the eight main jury members if he was going to escape conviction. So isn't that interesting, huh? It is. Just a simple majority. majority. Yeah. So different from needing a unanimous vote. So he was found guilty of nine of those murders and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Yeah, I guess there were two that they really couldn't prove that he had done to the jury's satisfaction. You'd do nine of the 11 enough to keep him in prison forever? Sure, but we've got to go over the fact that he was not going to stay in prison. He'd been saying ever since the police were looking at him after he'd gotten out of prison that he was not going to go back. He was going to kill himself. That was one thing he was sure of. He'd been threatening it to his girlfriend He had just told many people about it, and he did follow through with that. He only served one night of his prison sentence. He committed suicide the night of his sentencing, using the drawstring of his pants, 
fastened to a coat hook on the cell wall. And the knot was the same kind he had used to kill his victims. So that's really macabre, isn't it? Well, it is. If this was common knowledge that he said he was going to kill himself if he was convicted, did they kind of allow him to do that, or did they have him under some kind of suicide watch? I think maybe they allowed him to, and um, in my mind, I really can't say that I have a problem with that, honestly. I mean, do we really care? He's saving a lot of money and a lot of trouble. I guess the only thing for what I would say from the victim's standpoint or the loved ones of the victim's standpoint is he's not being punished, right? Because he's not serving life in prison. That's correct. So he is escaping punishment in that way, but I feel like in a way he's doing everyone a favor. You're probably right. Because there was nothing redeemable about him. (laughs) It would seem. And even some people who spend their lives in prison for doing something horrible, they might have redeemable qualities, things they can do in prison. Right. To help other prisoners or to do something. But he really had nothing to offer. He didn't. And that just makes you think, if they had not paroled him, or if they had charged him with the second murder way back in the day, and he was really in prison for life, you could have saved 10 or 11 people. Because Unterweger never had the time to appeal his conviction, under Austrian law, he's technically considered to be not guilty because his verdict was not legally binding yet. So we end up with this man known as the Vienna Strangler, eluded capture for years, all the while being right under people's noses. Yeah, and they also recovered some audio cassettes from his cell, but the content has never been released to the public. I'm sure it was some self-serving bullshit. Must have been. Don't you think? That's how he worked. Yeah, I would think if if there was something where he admitted to the crimes, the public would have heard them. Mm, Probably. Right? If he did admit to the crimes, he would have made excuses for himself. But this is a fairly well-known case, although I had never heard of it until recently. I hadn't either. Well, it was recommended to us, and I'm so sorry I can't remember the person who recommended it. We're horrible about that. We should always save the name of the first person who recommends it and give them credit. We should. Should work on that. But anyway, thank you for this recommendation. It was, I'd never heard of this guy either. And it was just a fascinating case. Yeah. So more on this case, if you're interested. In a 2008 performance, actor John Malkovich portrayed Unterwager's life in a performance entitled Seduction and Despair which premiered at Barnum Hall in Santa Monica, California. A fully staged version of the production, entitled The Infernal Comedy, premiered in Vienna in July of 2009. And the show has since been performed throughout Europe, North America, and South America. But I bet Malkovich did a good job. Well, he's he's that kind of actor. I'll bet he did an amazing job. We haven't been able to track that down. No, I don't know if it was filmed. It was a live performance, right? Yeah. But I just can imagine that he would have been good at that. Then there's also a book that we read titled Entering Hades, The Double Life of a Serial Killer by John Leake. Excellent book. In 2015, Elizabeth Sharang directed a film called Jack about Unterweger. And the story of the police investigation, pursuit, and prosecution is the subject of an episode of the FBI Files titled Killer Abroad, and that's Season 2, Episode 14. 
He's also the subject of an episode of biography titled Poet of Death. Then we have Austrian musician Falco, whose controversial song Genie, Part 1, depicts a murder and rapist's thoughts, and its promotional video contains a number of references to crime scenes both real and fictional. While the news break in it, which is also heard in the song, refers in an oblique way to Unterweger, who was still in jail at the time of the single's release. In the ID Channel's true crime series Horror at the Cecil Hotel, their premiere episode was on Unterweger, and that aired back in October of 2017. So there's a lot out there if you're interested. To me, it's fascinating. Reading the book by Lee. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And I, I just couldn't wait to keep reading. No, it's very well written. It reads well, which is great. And so much detail Yes, that you certainly can't get in a podcast, which you can get in that book. We could do it in a podcast if we wanted to do a 15-hour podcast. That's right. But I'll put a link to the book in our show notes for yeah, people who are interested. Definitely. Yeah. The music for True Crime Brewery is written and produced by Tristan Capel, our very talented jazz musician slash nephew. If you enjoy this podcast, I really encourage you to join Team Tie Grabber. This is a way for you to give support to the podcast and get yourself an extra episode each month. When you join, you get an email with login information and a link that shows you how to add our members-only show to your podcast app. Then you'll have access to all our past members-only episodes in addition to the new ones as they're released. You can get the same benefits by supporting us on Patreon. In April, we covered... The case of Lori Waterman, where her daughter had actually hired a couple of guys to kill her mother or convince them to do it anyway. Really outrageous how the daughter got very little punishment, although the men are serving life in prison. And just a few days ago, we released our members-only episode for May, and that's the story of Lorencia Bambenek. She is also known as Bambi. Uh, there's a book, the movies all kinds of stuff on her. She was actually a former policewoman who was convicted for a murder and escaped and was on the run for a period of time. Also, you can email us with your questions, suggestions, or comments at truecrimebrewery at tiegrabber.com or leave us a voicemail just by clicking on leave a voicemail on our website, tiegrabber.com. Another way to communicate with us and other listeners is to join our True Crime Brewery fan discussions group on Facebook or follow us on Instagram or Twitter. Okay, Dick, let's go on to feedback. Okay, we have a couple voicemails and a couple emails today. That's kind of the routine I'm settling into, two of each, Yeah. in case well, you I'm haven't just, noticed. I'm just really happy that we've had enough to do that. That's an improvement in voicemails. If we have two a week, that's great. So the first voicemail is from Kayla, who has some comments and a case suggestion for us. 
Hey, Dick and Jill, it's Kayla. Sorry, I am just now getting to record this message, but I've had a crazy busy semester winding down with school this year. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to share some fun facts about your Sympathy for the Devil episode with the Katie Texas high school football coach. Um, I was really intrigued when you started talking about how he and Belinda were best friends with some people named Tammy and Quentin Harlan. And at first I was like, no. And then I was thinking, well, how many people in Houston area are both named Tammy and Quentin Harlan? Anyway, it was really interesting to me because Tammy is actually a principal in the school district in Kingwood area, Texas, that I graduated from. And Quentin Harlan was a world history teacher and a football coach at the high school I graduated from in 2013. Um, his father also worked at the school I graduated from, and his younger brother was my high school economics teacher. And the year after I graduated, he actually, his brother, um, Zach, actually had to resign from his job for having a relationship with a student who um, was over 18, but still having a relationship with a student. So I just found all of that super interesting. And it, um, I did theater with Tammy and Quentin's daughter. I had Spanish class with one of their other daughters. And it was just um, a real fun fact that I had never learned. While I have you guys on voicemail, I also have a case suggestion. I'm sure you're probably tired of hearing my case suggestions. But I would love for you guys to do a podcast on the Daniel Lugo case or more commonly known as the Sun Gem murders or the bodybuilder murders. Um, a few years ago, Michael Bay made a movie called Pain and Gain that kind of glamorized the murders. And as I did more research on it, um, watching that movie together is the first date that my husband and I ever had. So I love that movie. But as I did more research, I was really interested in what actually happened with the case. Um, it's a real interesting story. And um, it's not a bad movie either. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. Talk to y'all later. Great. Thanks, Kayla. I'm trying to picture my first date watching that movie. <laughs> yeah. I've never seen the movie. No, it's all about bodybuilding and stuff. Okay. But there's a murder. Yeah. Yep. Is that a case we're considering doing? I think I'm going to try to see how much info I can get and see if there's enough to do an episode. Sure. But it, it looks interesting. Yeah. Well, the whole thing with Katie, Texas, it's just kind of funny how different people know different people that were involved in that case or knew them. And then we found out that Kelly was the prosecutor from Colt Justice and just a lot of things surrounding that case. It's yeah. just funny. Six degrees of separation, right? It's what it seems like. Like everybody you know is connected to that with those degrees of separation, perhaps. Yeah. So thanks a lot, Kayla. That is fascinating. Yeah, we'll see where we go from there. Okay. Then we have some comments from Emily. Hi, Jill and Dick. This is Emily from Chicago. Um, I just want to say, first of all, apologies if this sounds rehearsed, but I had to write everything out first because it's difficult for me to talk about, and I just wanted to be coherent when I leave you this voicemail. Um, also, I listened to, and I loved, as always, your episode yesterday on The Killer Nurse. Um, I've been an RN for almost 15 years, so it was really interesting to try and picture that individual from the perspective of a fellow nurse. I've worked with 
A few interesting people over the years that I might say had uh, definitely had borderline personality disorder at the very least. And I, pre- I appreciate the picture that you guys painted. Anyway, at the end, I was listening to your uh, viewer feedback and you played a voicemail about Rhonda Stapley from uh, one of your listeners who was a member of the LDS church. The caller was addressing that people had accused the church of saying it, it's better to die fighting than to lose your virginity or to be raped. Um, I, I did, I, I looked it up after. I listened to your feedback, and while that might not have been the LDS Church's official position, many people have said the same. I can only imagine that these people have never been in that position, and I hope that they never are. Many years ago, uh, I was in a really bad area um, of my city, but this was at like 11, 10 or 11 in the afternoon on a Sunday, and I was attacked at knife point. Let me say this first. I always, always believed that of course I would fight back. Of course I would go down fighting. Unfortunately, in a life or death situation, your so-called lizard brain takes over. Everything happens so quickly, there's not necessarily the opportunity to make conscious choices when your adrenaline is pumping and your heart is just beating in your ears. I tell you that to tell you this. Later, after I was at home, after the hospital and meeting with the police officers, I met the detectives that would be taking care of my case. For the most part, they were very kind and very helpful in the way that they talked to me and helped me through everything. Eventually, um, my primary detective's partner told me that the man who had attacked me had attacked and killed at least one other woman in the same area and in the same way. They thought that it might have been more like two or three. One of the only reasons I survived, he said, was because I was calm and compliant. I do not recall making a decision to be calm and compliant. My body took over. My mind took over, read the signals, and saved my life. It doesn't always pay to fight back. Though I would, of course, I would never judge anyone who did. Every situation is different. I also really wanted to share with you guys, because I know you're big readers, just like I am, a book that my dad gave me um, during the aftermath of all of this that really helped me to put everything in perspective and put my um, my response in perspective. And I think this is a book that every woman on this earth should should read and should you know be able to to experience. The author is Gavin DeBecker and the book is called The Gift of Fear and Other Survival Signals That Protect Us from Violence. This book really it really really changed my life and helped me understand why Things happened the way that they did and why I was very, very fortunate that they happened that way. Anyway, thank you so much for your insightful, entertaining, and always witty podcast. I love when you guys banter. I love listening to you guys. I've been listening to you since almost the beginning when you guys um, first started putting out podcasts. Um, I'm so glad that your audience is continuing to grow. I'm so glad that you guys uh, are, are out there and that I have been fortunate enough to uh, have the opportunity to listen to you. Uh, you absolutely deserve all of the the accolades and review five star reviews and everything that that you've gotten. Thank you so much, Jill and Dick. Take care. Well, gosh, thank you, Emily. What an know, amazing was, voicemail. I thought it was very worthwhile playing. Oh, absolutely! Just the fact that she shared that story. I'm kind of honored that she shared that with us. Yeah, doesn't it make you kind of make your blood run cold listening to that? It does, but I do remember that book, actually. I read it several years ago. And it is about, you know, kind of following your instincts. The one minor example I remembered was if an elevator door opens and there's someone in there that you don't feel comfortable being alone with, you know, someone kind of creepy, have the guts to turn and walk away. You know, don't feel like you have to be polite and not hurt people's feelings, I guess. Right. 
And then as far as whether you're compliant or you fight, I think that you really do have to go with your instinct. And we certainly wouldn't blame anyone either way that they went. No. No, but how terrifying that she was attacked by someone who murdered someone. I just can't imagine living with that. No. You know, you, you got to be thinking, holy shit, I just dodged this huge bullet. Right. But when it's happening, you have no way of knowing that. But I think that we do have some instincts in that way. And obviously, Emily's instincts served her well. Emily had some instinct. Yeah. So thanks so much, Emily, for sharing that for everything. Yes. Thank Amazing. you. Amazing. Yeah. Okay. Couple emails. Let's move on to emails. Okay. I'm going to do Chelsea, who has a case suggestion. She tells us that a 14-year-old boy named Trey Zwicker was murdered in Louisville several years ago. This was a very sad case as it was found that his stepdad, Josh Galker, and his stepbrother, Josh Young, were involved. But the stepbrother was found not guilty. And he even appeared on Dr. Phil. But it is a very interesting case if you all want to take a look at it. Ready for tomorrow's episode as I'm all caught up. I'm about to move to your Watching ID podcast. My TV stays on ID. a <laughs> girl, Chelsea. I really want to do some more episodes on that, too. Well, I'm game for that. It just do not seem like we ever have the time. The interesting thing about this, uh, I just quickly looked it up. So as, as Chelsea said, the stepfather was found guilty and his stepbrother was found not guilty. Down the road, the stepbrother said he did it. Okay. He participated. But what were the circumstances of this case? Do we know? Just that they didn't like the kid. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's you know, heartbreaking. The, the usual senseless murder. Right, sure. But it was interesting that after he's acquitted, he comes forward and says, yes, I did it. To who? Publicly? Yeah. Hmm. I, yeah. How Was he older than the 14-year-old that we know? Or younger? He was. I think he was 17, something around there. Wow. Okay. All right. Thanks, Chelsea. That's really... Yeah, it was fascinating. I've, I've written that down. I'm going to start checking up on, up on that. Then we have some comments on the Kristen Gilbert case, the the nurse who liked to kill people. This yes. is from Gabriel Yellowtail. It's all yours. In the late 80s, my mom handled the billing and credentialing for an anesthesiologist department at a Maryland hospital. She worked at the same time Nurse Jane Bolding did. This nurse was accused of killing patients and went to trial for three murders. I was pretty young, but I remember it was awful. My mom had to testify or give a deposition. Bolding was acquitted, and I think she went on to practice elsewhere, though I'm not sure. My mom said that everyone knew the nurse was guilty. I think she injected them with potassium chloride. I remember that medicine name because years later when I was a teenager, my mom made me work at her hospital as a gopher for the anesthesiologist. And I would change machine tubing after surgeries or babysit recovery patients after surgeries. Or sometimes I was asked to inventory the damn drug cabinet thingy. <laughs> like they would hand me a clipboard and say, check off, count up the bottles and write the number down or approximately how much is left in the bottle if the seal is broken, etc. Like I didn't weigh it or nothing. I just eyed it. I remember a doctor saying not to count the potassium chloride incorrectly or else they'll call us the deathologists. I remember thinking, I wonder why they want a kid to count this shit. And what if I mess up? Good question. It was a lot of bottles and some caused immediate death. WTF. 
I also thought, hmm, if that idiot Marcy so-and-so from school doesn't stop making fun of me, I'm gonna dot dot dot. Just kidding. I think my mom thought I'd want to be a doctor if I was around doctors. Yeah, no. I spent most of my working hours napping in broom closets. I would try to start off each day doing a good job. I'd punch in and scan the day's surgery list, always looking for a really cool one to watch. Meh, usually it was just boring gallbladder removals, and so I'd nap. Some days, if I got lucky, I would get to watch a brain surgery. (laughs) This is just cracking me up. (laughs) I thought you'd like it. Yep, that was me. The boss's daughter would creep into brain surgeries and stand there amazed. Ah, sometimes the doctors were super nice and let me get real close to the area they were working on. Once I got to see a leg amputation up close. It was yucky and didn't look at all like I thought it would. It's like the sharpest long skinny saw ever, with teeth, and the doctor moves his hand on each side, sliding it back and forth and back and forth, cutting the flesh like butter right through the bone. The best was still a brain surgery. They were so crazy because patients were usually awake and sitting up. It kind of scared me a little. I mean, I was only 14. All in all, it was a really, really boring gig. Surgeries were sanitary unless it was an emergency, and those usually happened at night. No fast-paced TV doctor stuff. I did try the OBGYN ward one week, but my mom was afraid I'd never want to have kids because I was traumatized after the first day. (laughs) There was so much screaming. (laughs) There was so much screaming and or moaning made by the women going through contractions. It caused me to panic. Anyway, (laughs) Jane Boulding got away with murder. (laughs) All right. She made her point there. Yeah, she got around to it eventually. (laughs) (laughs) That is the funniest email I have ever read. And you should be a professional comedian. Holy shit. Very good. Yeah, thank you, Gabriel. That That was fun. So as far as the case goes, I really think it's interesting that her mom said everyone knew the nurse was guilty. Because when you're working somewhere, people know what's going on, kind of, even if you don't have proof. Right. So I can just imagine the whole Kristen Gilbert must have been quite an experience to work with her. Yeah. And and the other thing along with that is if everyone seemed to know she was guilty, how'd she get acquitted? Not enough evidence. Acquitted? She was found guilty. No, this one. Oh, Bolding. Bolding. That I don't know. I guess they didn't have evidence. I don't know anything about that case. No, I didn't. I didn't look it up. But I do know that she got away with murder. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right? That she did. Yeah. All right. All right. Thank you very much. Great emails. So they were were good emails. Yep. Good. All right. Let's wrap it up for the day. And we'll be back next week with a new episode of True Crime Brewery. Really excited about next week's episode. Yeah, you've been going on and on about it. Yeah, next week's episode is about the murder of Andrew Bagby. And his son, Zachary Turner. And everything that the parents went through. There was a quite popular documentary on Netflix. Now it's on Prime Video. But there's also an excellent book. So anyway, next week is a really excellent episode. I hope you'll come back and join us next week. Please, we'll meet at the quiet end. Let's meet at the quiet end. It's a good place. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye, guys.